Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning is from Proverbs 27, verse 3. A stone is heavy, and sand is weighty, but a fool's wrath is heavier than both of them. Here we see that the wrath of a fool is weighty. It's a burden. An angry fool is hard to bear. There's another way to translate translate this verse, and it starts the same. A stone is heavy, and sand is weighty, but it ends with... But the provocation of a fool is heavier than both of them. The Hebrew is ambiguous, but the second translation is probably a little more helpful. It speaks of the provocation of a fool. This is far more broad than simply his anger. Rather, it points to the unbearable nature of fools. They have annoying tendencies. They have persistence in their folly. It brings to mind the Duffelpuds from C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Their master's punishment was to bear with their simple-mindedness. Things like they wanted to wash the dishes before dinner in order to save time after. Or their ridiculous habit of agreeing with everything that their chief said when all that he said was patently obvious. Water, that's powerfully wet stuff that is. Right you are, chief. Couldn't have put it better myself. Or their inordinate fear of and vilifying of their master. In the book, Kariakin is their master. He bears with them with remarkable patience, wisdom, and love. But the point is that it requires exactly that. It is a burden for him to bear. You see, life is hard enough in general... There are stones that need moved and sand that needs transported. And this is hard work. But foolishness exacerbates life's woes. The fool provokes. This happens in many ways. Fools whine. They complain. They blame. They accuse. They're lazy. They waste time. They waste energy. And they tax the patience and resources of those around them. Now this proverb is a simple statement of fact. But this is an exhortation and a call to confession. So what's the moral duty that we can glean from this fact? One thing is that this proverb can be an encouragement toward diligence in training our children. We read in Proverbs 22 verse 15 that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. Much strife and much burden, much weight can be avoided by diligence early on. Foolishness can be driven from them, but our children's hearts need shepherding. And like Kariakin does with the duffel puds, we must bear with our kids with patience, wisdom, and love, teaching them to forsake folly and embrace wisdom. Another moral duty is that once we confess the truth of this proverb, we should do some introspection. Where do I fit into this picture? 
Fools are frequently oblivious to the provocation that they bring. Men are regularly blind to their own offenses. They can't see their own foibles. Humility is the first step, and we must humbly look into our own lives. Ask yourself, am I the fool? Am I the weak link? The burden on those around me? Do I provoke them? Better yet, ask for insight from those who are close to you, or who have authority over you, and be willing to hear them out. Are there particular areas where you need to grow and learn and change? Perhaps we can spin it more positively. Ask yourself, am I part of the answer? Am I carrying my load? Am I really faithful in my Christian duty of communicating God's grace and shedding the light of the gospel? If not, we must confess our sin and turn from it. Which reminds us we need to confess our sins, so if you will, you need it, please speak. We do thank you for your revelation of yourself to us in your word. We thank you for the book of Jonah. We thank you for the wisdom and the grace that you pour out to us in it. The revelation of your sovereign mercy that you extend to the world. Father, we pray that you would bless our study of the fourth chapter today. May you open up its truth to us. May we have guidance and understanding. May your spirit be present with us. May you apply these truths to our hearts, to our lives. May you fill us with knowledge and grace. And may you instruct us, consecrate us, sanctify us, and teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we do wrap up our study of the book of Jonah. Last time, two weeks ago, in chapter 3, we saw the grace of God to Nineveh. God sent a message to them, and the Ninevites repented. In that chapter, Jonah sort of took a back seat. He was a vehicle or a medium which God used. He was, he was the one who delivered God's message to the Ninevites. But the key characters were God and the people of Nineveh. God sent Jonah with a message that they would be destroyed in 40 days. The Ninevites believed God and repented. And then God repented of the destruction that he had determined to send on them. Jonah 3 verse 10. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. In chapter 4, Jonah and God are the primary characters. Jonah is extremely displeased with God's grace to Nineveh. He is angry. He is bitterly angry. He is so angry that he wants to die. And God teaches him a lesson, which is probably the main point of the entire book of Jonah. And it amounts to this. God is gracious. In his nature, he is gracious. He is far more gracious than we realize or can comprehend. And whether we like it or not, it is not right for us to be angry at his astounding mercy. So let's turn to our text in Jonah 4. The first thing we see is Jonah's reaction 
to God's mercy. Verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. And then Jonah prays, verses 2 and 3. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Well, the first thing we notice here is that Jonah at least does with his anger what we ought to do with our anger, and that's to pray. He goes to God with it. But Jonah is not exactly a stellar example for us. Jonah gives us a defense of his initial flight. He defends his defection. He defends his disobedience. He says, isn't this what I said? That's why I fled in the first place. He knew that God was gracious. He knew that this would happen. Now it perhaps is hard for us to understand the strength of Jonah's feelings about this. Why is he so angry at God? And there are many postulations. There are many uh, ponderings about what specifically fueled Jonah's rage, his anger. For instance, some think that it was his Israelite nationalism that made him angry. He was frustrated that the Gentiles would be included, that they could partake in forgiveness of sin, like the Israelites. Perhaps it was that he he knew that this was a sign against Israel, that that this would be a a precursor to the, to the punishment that was coming against Israel. That these were Israel's enemies. It would be like God sending one of us to go minister to ISIS. You know, somebody who hates us and wants to destroy us. Um, or perhaps it was the fact that his predictions didn't come true. That, you know, here he was prophesying that they'd be destroyed in 40 days and God relented. So he looked bad. We don't know. Specifically, what drove Jonah's anger. We don't know for sure, but we do know that his anger was very real and it was very strong and it was connected to his knowledge of God's gracious nature. It was God's gracious nature that made Jonah angry. So he says, it's because you're gracious. It's because I knew you were gracious. I'm angry. And God responds in verse 4. So then the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? That's God's answer. Is it right? He asks a question. Is it right for you to be angry? This is not all that different from when God God addresses Job. When Job, at the end of his book, says to God, why? Why do I have to suffer? What did I do? Why? I'm righteous. I'm innocent. Why? And God asked Jonah a question. I mean, asked Job a question. Who are you? Who are you? And like that, he asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Now in the text, Jonah doesn't really answer God. Instead, he pouts. He throws a hissy fit. Verse 5. 
So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. He goes and pouts. And God prepares a little lesson for Jonah. And that's the rest of the chapter. This is this lesson that God has for Jonah. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. Now, that he was extremely happy. He rejoiced over this plant. That's what the, the Hebrew says. Rejoicing, he rejoiced over this plant. But as morning dawned, the next day, God prepared a worm, and it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind. And the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, It is better for me to die than to live. So Jonah, is, he's, he's in fine pouting form. He is, he's, he's given up on life. He's angry at God. He says, I just don't want any more of this. And then God answers. And in your notes there, I said, Jonah postulates. And the reason I did that is because Jonah's the one who gave us this book. He's giving us here the conclusion to the matter. This is his pondering. This is Jonah's thinking about what, what's, what's going on here. Verses 9 through 11. Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, It is right for me to be angry, even to death. But the Lord said, You have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and much livestock? So, a couple of comments here on the text. Um, Jonah's communicating what God has taught him here. And he puts it in a powerful form. He doesn't really answer the question. He doesn't, he doesn't answer this rhetorical question that, that God has asked him. He also, as a discerning between... The, I'm sorry. I lost my train of thought. So... So he's communicating what God taught him, and he puts it in a powerful form, this rhetorical question. So God says, is it right? Is it right? And, and should I not? Should I not have pity? Should I not have mercy on these people? There is a, there is a textual comment. Um, it, when, he, when he says, those who cannot discern between the right and left hands, uh, some have taken that literally, thinking that it's speaking about children, five years and under, or something like that. But it's probably talking about the nation of, of the Assyrians as a whole, or, or the Ninevites as a whole. It's talking about the immaturity of the Ninevites as, when it comes to discerning the true God. Discerning what God expects of them. Now as I mentioned in the beginning, you've probably ascertained in this chapter that there are two major themes going on. Jonah's bitter anger... 
and God's unrelenting grace. God is unrelenting in his grace to Nineveh and in his grace to Jonah. He's interested in teaching Jonah about who he is and teaching Jonah about what his expectation for Jonah is and for his people in general are. So Jonah is a prophet and he's a prophet to Nineveh, but he writes the book of Jonah and gives it to the nation of Israel as a witness for them and to them. So let's turn to Jonah's bitter anger. This, this emotion is a deeply selfish emotion. Jonah is totally wrapped up in himself, in his own worldview, his own mindset, and his own perspective. In his prayer, in verses 2, two and 3, he uses the pronouns I, me, and my eight times in those two verses. And, and in the Hebrew, he uses them nine times. It's a little repetitive, so they take one out. Um, this gives us a, new, a valuable insight into the nature of bitter anger. Anger, in and of itself, is not necessarily a sin. In fact, the Bible positively commands us in Ephesians to be angry and do not sin. Jesus himself was angry with the Pharisees because of their lack of compassion for the man with the withered hand. And with the money changers for making the temple into a place of oppression instead of a place of grace. Anger is an emotional response to perceived injustice. That's what anger is. It's when we recognize that there is something that is, is just or right or proper. And it is not, that standard is not being met. And, that, and, and especially when we have a love for that standard. When we have a yearning, a, a desire for the benefit of that standard. We want to establish that standard. We want to defend that standard. It gets, makes us angry when we see that standard broken. That's what anger is. And this is rational. And it's helpful when it is based on truth and reality. And when it's held in check. Or when it's arrived at by godly means. When God is being offended. When God's standard is being mocked, that should create anger in God's people. A righteous and holy anger that, is, that, that drives them to defend it, to protect it, to, 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 take, to take care of God's, what God takes care of, to love what God loves. And God's means are demonstrated by God himself. Jonah tells us God is a a God who is slow to wrath, slow to anger, slow to vengeance. So we need to arrive at godly anger by means of godly paths, which means we must have a long fuse. Or if you're Hebrew, a long nose, because your nose burns hot. And if if you're patient in Hebrew, you have a long nose. So we need to be patient. We need to be, be, be slow to wrath. But Jonah's problem is bitter anger. And bitterness is always a problem throughout the scriptures. God never tells us, be bitter and do not sin. That's that's an oxymoron. You can't say that. It's self-contradictory. Bitterness is always a sin. And it's a root sin. And it has many branches. It it displays itself in many ways. 
At its heart, bitterness is idolatry. And the idolatry of bitterness is this. It's that it's when we take anything, anything other than God, and make it our standard by which we judge things. If we take anything other than God and make it our God, that, that idolatry, then because our God is the real God and He orders the way things are in the real world, the real world will not match up to our standard because we have a false standard in that idolatry. We will take issue with the way that things are. And the more we feed that idolatry, the more we focus on this, this inordinate love for something that may be a good in and of itself, the more settled and self-righteous the bitterness becomes. So take Jonah, for example. Here was a, a prophet of God's people who loved God's people. He loved Israel. He cherished Israel. He hated the, the threat that the Ninevites posed to Israel. He idolized Israel. And when God reveals to Jonah that his people is a broader category than just Israel, Jonah got angry with God. He accused God of unjust, injustice. He accused God of unrighteousness. Because of his idolatry. He was confusing his own standard for what the true standard really was. So as we embrace these false idols, we feel more justified in hatred or anger. And the real God comes down and asks Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry? The end result of bitter anger is irrational rage. That's the end result. It's irrational rage. God says, I am the standard. Is it right for you to be angry at me? Jonah pouts. Jonah says, I want to die. It's irrational. Not very long ago, back in chapter 2, while Jonah was in the belly of the fish, he cries out for his life. Save me. And he proclaimed praise and thanksgiving at God's sparing of his life. Jonah 2 verse 9. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. He makes a confession of faith. He declares his thanksgiving to God for saving his life. Notice how consistent saving Jonah's life is with loving Israel. Saving Jonah's life is consistent with loving Israel. When Jonah goes and pouts, he goes outside of the city and he makes himself a booth and it's hot and it's oppressive heat. He's waiting for those 40 days to come by to see what God's going to do. And the reason he rejoices greatly 
at the appearance of this plant that shields him from the sun is because he thinks that God is showing favor on him. He thinks that, look, they're not really repentant. God's real. See, God is going to bless me here. He's going to let me wait in comfort for this destruction to come on Nineveh. It's interesting that when Jonah decides to pout, he makes himself this booth, right? He makes himself a booth. It's the, it's the, it's the tabernacles that they would make for the, 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 ta- the Feast of Tabernacles. That the, the Israelites were called to come once every year in the, in the, in the fall harvest to, to Jerusalem. And they would, they, they would live in tabernacles. Uh, when Jonah makes a tabernacle... This would bring to mind, for any Israelite, this annual Feast of Booths. And this, this feast was particularly a time um, where they remembered God's redemption for his people Israel. God's protection and deliverance of them as they were marching through the wilderness. They were particularly told to show kindness to the stranger, the widow, and the orphans. In Deuteronomy 16, verse 14. And you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, and the Levite, the stranger, and the fatherless, and the widow who are within your gates. It's, it's an inclusive feast. It's, it's a time where they would celebrate, they would bring their tithes in from the harvest, and they would have a, a, a joyous feast and share the good gifts of God. With the world. Now here Jonah is on the eve of the greatest missionary harvest recorded in scripture. And he builds a booth to mope. And to pray for the destruction of his converts. He's got it backwards. Jonah's forgotten his confession Back in chapter 2. Remember what he said just before verse 9. Which I, I read a minute ago. He said this. Those who regard worthless idols. Forsake their own mercy. Those who regard worthless idols. Forsake their own mercy. Jonah 2 verse 8. Jonah is forsaking his own mercy. His worthless idol of Israelite nationalism. Places him under God's judgment. So God uses this plant to teach Jonah a lesson. And he sends a worm to destroy it. And he sends the destruction, the burning heat, the burning fire of his wrath on Jonah. That's the destruction that Jonah was praying would land on the Ninevites. So God takes Jonah's mercy away. To remind him... Of God's ways. And if Jonah can pity a mere plant, then shouldn't God be allowed to show mercy to the height of his creation? A city full of men and women and children and their animals. Of course he should. Of course he should. And the way Jonah's written this book, it's obviously, yes, of course he should. That's the kind of God we serve. 
Our God is a God of unquenchable, unstoppable, and irrevocable sovereign grace. He saves sinners and he establishes life. He brings people back from the dead, just like he did to Jonah, just like he did to Jesus. In our passage we read this morning in the Old Testament was from Isaiah chapter 42. This was very clear. That God's intention is for the salvation of the world. His sovereign grace is for mankind. Listen to, listen to, to what, how God describes his, his relationship with the world. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him, he will bring forth justice. He's speaking of Jesus. He will bring forth justice... To the Gentiles. This is God's relationship with man. Broadly speaking. Broader than just the the covenant people of Israel. This is what Jesus is like. He will not cry out. Nor raise his voice. Nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice or truth. He's gentle. He's kind. He's good. And yet he's successful. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands shall wait for his law. So this is Jesus who by his grace, by his love, is establishing justice. How does he do that? How is that possible? How can we not be bitterly angry at God? Well... Remember what the definition of anger is. Anger is frustration about a broken standard. It's, it's, it's frustration about something we love being attacked. How can Jesus show grace to the Gentiles without causing us to be angry at God's standard being broken. Well, it's because of the gospel. It's because Jesus died for our sins. It's because Jesus atoned for those wickednesses that cause us, those injustices that drive the anger. If anybody has a right to be angry at sin, it's God and Jesus. Right? If anybody has a right to destroy the people, it's God. And yet God sends His servant to bring restoration and peace. Continuing on in Isaiah 42. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and which comes from it, who gives breath to the people in it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. See, now there's this categories crossing here. He's talking to Jesus. I will hold your hand. He's talking to Israel. I will hold your hand. I will, I've called you in righteousness and holiness. But I give you as a covenant. I give you 
as a light to the Gentiles. So Jonah embodies the gospel. He lives it out. God held his hand and took him out of that fish. And he gave him to the Ninevites. He gave him to the Ninevites so that they might be saved. Delivered from that holy, righteous wrath of God. Just like God calls each of us to be given to the world. As a light to the Gentiles. To open blind eyes. To bring out prisoners from the prison. Those who sit in darkness from the prison house. That's who we are. So this is obviously a prophecy about Jesus. Isaiah wrote after the book of Jonah. Quite a while after the book of Jonah. But, and he's prophesying about Jesus. But in Jonah, and in the book of Jonah, we get a preview of what God's intention is. We see God's message is too good to wait. God, God jumps the gun. He says, I'm going to save the world. And then he does save Nineveh. Before Jesus. And an entire city is converted and saved. Even before Jesus fulfills the law. Now this is obviously a, Christ, I mean, a Jewish lesson. A lesson that the Jews needed to learn. It's a lesson that the Jews needed to learn. That they were the chosen people. And they had to give up that position of specialness. In order to share it with the world. Their, their position was a position of servanthood. They were to be the medium. They were to be the method through which God would save the world. But this is also a Christian lesson. This is a lesson that we as the church, as the new Israel, need to learn. So we see this taught over and over again in the New Testament. Jesus talks about it when he gives us the parable of the prodigal son. Where the older brother gets angry at God's kindness to the prodigal. We see this in the parable of the laborers working in the field. And the ones who bore the heat of the day come in at the end of the day. And are receiving the same compensation as those who came in at the end of the day. And they're angry. And Jesus teaches. Is, 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 the, is the master wicked for, for desiring to do good? Of course not. This is the, the lesson that the Jews needed to learn and the Christians needed to learn when the gospel started going out to the Gentiles. What we read about in Acts, where Peter's preaching to the Gentiles. And what, what do we read? Those of, the circum, so the, oh, those of the circumcision were flabbergasted. Okay, that's not the text. But that's, they were flabbergasted. What? The Holy Spirit is on Gentiles too? Yes. Jew, Jewish Christians needed to learn this. This is a huge part of the book of Romans. In Paul's argument in Romans, he says that the Jews have to make way for the Gentiles because the gospel has gone out to the Gentiles. But he turns right around and says, the church needs to leave room for the Jews. In, the, in, the, in the, the example of the olive branches. Remember? The wild olive branches are grafted in. And they can be cut out. And the Jews can be grafted back in. Being natural olive branches. 
The point is this. That God is and must be all in all. It's about Him. It's about Jesus Christ. It's not about our nationality. It's not about divisions. It's not about separation. So those things must not be named among us. And so we learn that we must love our neighbor. We may not have nationalism be named among us. We may not have racism be named among us. We may not have classism. Those of a lower class are not lesser than us. We may not have arrogance. We may not have pride. We may not be selfish. You are not too good for them. Jesus was not too good for them. Therefore, you are not too good for them. God's gospel is universally offered to all men everywhere, as many as our God shall call. And he calls all who are humble and repent of their sin. Therefore, you be the humble one. You be the one who repents of your sin. Repent of any idolatry or selfish pride. What might it be for us? We don't use the public school system. We're too good for that. We're reformed in our theology. We know better than everybody else. We, 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 have, a, a, we have a sanctified congregation. We don't see any drug abuse here. We don't see any sexual abuse here. You have to fit in here in order to fit in here. If that's how we come across, we need to repent of it. We need to repent of it. We need to be like the Pharisees. And we need to not be like the Pharisees. We need to be like the repentant Pharisees. The ones who see, like Nicodemus. The ones who see what Jesus came to do. And that's to save sinners, of whom I am chief. We need to be like Paul. Remember God's mercy to you. That's Jonah's problem. He forgot the fish. Or he misinterpreted it. But either way, he wasn't thinking straight. And God was saying, no, you need to straighten this out, Jonah. Remember God's mercy to you. Your sin creates a gap between you and him that is far larger than any gap you can imagine between yourself and anybody else, else that you can think of. The, the scummiest, scummiest scum of the earth is closer to you than you are to God. And God bridged that gap. He loved you. And he's calling you to be like him. So go. Go out. Go to the poor. Go to the strangers. Go to the lost. Proclaim the gospel. Go. That's our mission. That's, that's our marching orders. That's the great commission. Go. Make disciples of all nations. Point to Jesus. 
Point to God. Eliminate the distinctions. There's no Jew. There's no Greek. There's no male. There's no female. There's no Scythian. There's no distinctions. You are God's. And he loved you. And he died for you. Go and preach the gospel. Give sacrificially. Give graciously. And give kindly. Now this mission is scary. This is hard. But this is God's command. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the book of Jonah. And we pray that you would make its message real to us. Pound it into our thick skulls. Turn us from our folly. Turn us from our pride. Turn us from our selfishness. Fill us with love for the world that you died to save. Fill us with love for people who are broken and messed up and don't know their right hand from the left. Fill us with love for you and faithfulness so that we might walk and do what you call us to do. Make us bold. Give us courage. And establish your kingdom in and through us. Reform us. Make us whole and pure and glorious. May we be a conduit for your love. In Jesus' name. serve a holy and awesome God. We all deserve damnation outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but our God has sent us a Savior, and He has revealed His love, compassion, grace, and mercy to us in Him. All of these we remember here at this table, where we receive the promise and grace of His continued love and our continued participation in His life. Are you angry? Are you holding on to some perceived injustice? Let it go. Give it to God and look to Him for justice and peace. He knows how to deal with sin and He will deal with all of it perfectly, ultimately. We can trust Him in this, but it starts by receiving His grace first. So remember and believe and then go out and share. This table is for you. Christ's body. Broken for us. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.